Well, welcome uh, once again here to Westside Church as we meet together online. And this is part three in our series that we're calling Triggered. And we're talking about uh, in a world where many of us very easily get offended or we see a lot of polarization in terms of people's opinions. Uh, how do we navigate through that? And how uh, in, in a climate where a lot of times people are torn apart, how do we bring people back together and live lives of peace and harmony in the kind of life that Jesus teaches us to live? And we've been jumping off of this really famous verse from John chapter 3, verse 16, that says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And today I want to talk about kind of the third part in that verse, the part that says that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Who, who is it that believes in him? What does it mean to believe? What are we supposed to believe? Uh, and how does that actually get worked out in our lives? And a lot is at stake here because as that verse says, whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And we all go, well, if there's eternal life, whatever that is, and next week we're actually going to dive in and really talk about what eternal life is all about. Uh, but, but it's something that even if we're not 100% sure, it sounds like we want to be part of that. And so whoever believes in him, whoever believes in Jesus shall not perish, but have eternal life, uh, we want to kind of unpack who it is and what it is that we need to believe or believe in to kind of uh, make this alive in our world. Now, a lot of Christians in our era, and I think this is a product of sort of the intellectual milieu of the last couple of hundred years, but we've taken that to mean that we need to believe all of the right facts, that we have to have all of the right opinions. And so we've oftentimes read this verse, and when we come to whoever believes, we, we have sort of understood that to mean that there's a list of uh, doctrines, theology, things about the Bible, uh, things about God that we need to believe. And if we believe all of those right things, then we can can have eternal life. And today I want to dive in and, and talk about what that looks like because I think what's happened is there have been a, a lot of uh, polarization in terms of people's opinions. Now this is true in the world in general. Go to any major topic, look at the news for, for, for any big area of life, whether it be the economy, whether it be politics, whether it's how do we deal with a pandemic, are we doing well with it, are we doing bad with it, should we be doing something else, should we be acting more like a different country and what they're doing, uh, healthcare, all these kind of different arenas of life, there are people who have very strong opinions and you don't have to look too far to find very polarizing opinions or way of approaching things where sometimes we just we get even really mad and we demonize people who think differently than we do. That, that we think we've got it right and they've got it wrong. And Christians have, I think, really taken a lot of the times, unfortunately, we've taken that same sort of approach and mindset because so much is at stake. For, to believe and have eternal life. And so well, there's so much at stake in, in making sure that we believe the right things. But what's happened is not even looking around at the world in general, but even Christians with so much emphasis on what we should believe end up being very polarized with one another. We can't even agree on all sorts of different things. In fact, we start to argue with each other about all sorts of different things. And some of the issues are relatively silly, but they get very emotionally charged. What, what are you supposed to wear to church or what kind of music are we supposed to have as part of a church service? But people get so upset about it and so emotionally invested in it and sometimes so 
polarized from even other Christians of, oh, you think that, but I think that, and you have to be wrong, and, and that church does things completely the wrong way, and I don't even know if they're Christians at all because they don't believe rightly. Some of them are even more important issues, like social issues. And, and those issues, the hot button ones, uh, the ones that get into the, the really hot button topics, they're different every generation. But we all have them. Every generation has the things that we really focused on. In the past, it was, it was issues like, um, can, can Christians drink or dance? Or, or what about divorce? And we come more into uh, the, this generation, and, and there's a lot of uh, debating and polarization over, say, gender roles or sexuality, things that are very important to have opinions on. But if you go to any Christian uh, bookstore or go online to a, a Christian book website, you'll find that you can pick just about any topic, any theology, any social issue, and even amongst Christians, you'll find very differing and sometimes polarizing views. And then we come back to this verse and we read about how important it is for those to believe, for whoever believes in him. And so today, again, we want to unpack what it really means to believe in Jesus. And I want to ask the question, is there anything more important than being right? Is there something more important than being right when it comes to this question, when it comes to what it means to believe so that we could have eternal life? And Jesus actually takes this up and it's really helpful in another spot. We're going to be in Luke chapter 10 today. And he directly addresses this question because somebody comes and asks him about eternal life. How do I get to eternal life? So Luke chapter 10, verse 25, it says, On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? A lot is on the line. What does Jesus say? If I want to inherit eternal life, receive eternal life from God, how do I do that? What is written in the law? He replied, Jesus replied, how do you read it? So go to the Bible and, and what's the most important thing? And he answers in verse 27, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. This is a very common answer at Jesus' time for a Jewish person who had the Jewish Bible to look into it and say, well, how, how would you inherit, like, what's most important? How do you live the life God wants you to live? And this would be a very common answer that he's given. To love God basically says, break that down if we had time, but with all that you are and to love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. Great. So this guy's setting up this little test for Jesus. He gives the answer and then Jesus goes, exactly. Now go live that out. Here's where it gets interesting. But he, desiring to justify himself. Oh, that's important. So with his desire to say, I want to make sure that I'm good. That I'm the person that that's true for. He said to Jesus. And who is my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? So you want to inherit life. Jesus says, so love God and love your neighbor as yourself. And he goes, great, I love God. Now, I just want to make sure that I'm in, that I believe the right thing and I'm doing the right thing. So just to make sure, who's my neighbor? And Jesus launches into this powerful little story. He replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. 
Okay, uh, he, this is a famous road. It goes from Jerusalem to Jericho. It, it's a road uh, where travelers were notoriously vulnerable. And it was a place where this hypothetical scenario that Jesus, he's telling a story. He's making this story up. But um, this would have happened all the time. On this road, knowing that the, the way that it was laid out and the distance and it goes through the desert, a little bit of a desert area. It was a spot where travelers knew they were particularly vulnerable. And there were places where robbers would kind of hide out and then jump people, beat them, take their stuff. And so people knew this was a dangerous place. And so Jesus is picking up on a, a well-known road and telling a story that people could imagine. So this guy is going down the road and he is stripped and beaten and then leave him half dead. A couple of important things. So he's stripped and beaten uh, half dead, which is an idiom we might say he was beaten to an inch of his life. So he is there unconscious, probably in a state where someone who had come by wouldn't know if he was dead or alive. Like he's just lying there and you, you think he's in, obviously in rough shape, but I don't know if he's alive or he's dead. He's, he's just over there on the side of the road. It's important that he's been stripped down because that means that since he would be unconscious and now his clothing would be gone, that he's unidentifiable. He wouldn't be able to tell you who he is and his clothing, which in that culture, would have really differentiated you in terms of your ethnicity or even religion is gone. And so if somebody comes by, they're not going to know, is he one of us or one of them? Is he someone like me and my religion? Is he part of my ethnicity or is he somebody else? This just becomes somebody that we know who is deeply in need and been deeply wounded. And then it says, now by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So here comes a priest. A priest would have been riding some kind of animal because priests were fairly high on the totem pole in society, um, kind of upper class. And it says that when he sees him, he gets really far away. He goes all the way to the other side of the road. Now, this kind of seems initially, you go, what a jerk. I mean, wouldn't he at least stop and, and try and get some help? But he goes to the other side. Now, here's why a priest would do that. The function of a priest largely is to help the worshiping community worship. And they would have accepted uh, different sacrifices, uh, animals and grains. And their function would have been to sacrifice on behalf of the people and to perform certain ritual, ritual ceremonies, religious rites that were very important for the worshiping community in Jerusalem. Now, if a priest got too close to someone who is dead, and remember, this guy has been beaten to an inch of his life, he could be dead. A priest would be defiled. And that was a really big deal. They couldn't come close to a dead body because then they wouldn't be able to perform their religious rituals and ceremonies. And it would have an effect on other people and how they worshiped. And it would have an effect on their own life because not only did they accept people's sacrifices and sacrifice them to God, but they also took some of those sacrifices and that's, how, that's what they lived off of, the, the meat and the grains and they would feed their families and all the rest of it. And so the consequences for a priest becoming defiled were not just for them that they were defiled and couldn't do their job, but also for their families. This was their livelihood. And to get back into a place where you could once again do those rites and ceremonies, it was not easy. In fact, priests who were defiled would have to stand up and be shamed in front of the whole community. And then there was a week-long process 
to become clean again, it would take like a whole cow's worth of sacrifices for them to be able to return to that place where they are ritually pure and clean and able to uh, perform the functions that they perform. So when this priest comes by and he sees this guy who could be dead, he doesn't know who he is. Is he a Jew like me? Is he not a Jew? I don't know. He, cry, he gets far away because if you were within like four meters or something of a, of a dead body, then you'd be defiled. He's making sure that he can continue to do his religious duty. His religious duty, the priorities say, you need to be there at the temple and do the sacrifices for people. Your religious duties say you can't go too close to this man or you'll be defiled. And so that's his mindset. He's got the codified system of the do's and don'ts, and this is a don't. And it's more important in his mind for him to stay ritually pure and clean than to help this man. Next, so likewise, Levite, when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. Here comes a Levite. Now, a Levite uh, is not the same status as a priest, but a Levite also works in the temple. And a Levite also uh, helps out with sacrifices and does different things that are part of the worshiping community. The difference is that uh, where a priest um, can be defiled at any time and that can disqualify him from his duties, a Levite only has to be ritually clean when he's actually performing those duties. So if he's off duty and coming out of the city, presumably he wouldn't have quite the same level of concern. But since this road, like I said before, is a notorious one where people knew they were vulnerable and there was often robbers that would uh, hijack people like this and, and beat them and rob them. One of the things that we should assume from this story is the Levite probably knew that there was a priest ahead of him because anybody going on this road would want to know who's traveling just ahead of them or just behind them in case there was danger or something was happening. That would have been real common practice. So we should probably be thinking here, the Levite knows the priest has gone before him. Maybe he could even see it on this road. Uh, actually, from Jerusalem to Jericho, it's mostly downhill. You can see a really long way of who's in front of you and what they're doing. And so the Levite comes, and it says that when, when, when he sees him, and he came to the place, when he came to the place and saw him, so it, the inference here is he goes a little bit closer than the priest does. He comes to the place, and he saw him. But then he passes by, too. He's probably thinking a couple of things. One, if the priest has always come, already come by and he didn't stop and do something, who am I to challenge the interpretation of priorities that the priest laid out? If the priest thinks he has to keep his distance so that he can perform his rituals, then who am I to say that I shouldn't do the same? He's probably also thinking, if I really stop and spend some time here taking care of this guy, who knows where the robbers are all around us, that I am putting myself even more at risk. There's even more danger. This could be really costly if they beat him and stole his stuff. Who's to say that they're not still around waiting for the next guy, which could be me. And so the Levite, out of concern for his own well-being, whether that's his status with the priest, which is kind of like his boss, or his own physical safety, it says, it's my priority to make sure that I'm taken care of. And as much as I might like to help this guy, I can't help him out either. And what we learn here is that the robbers have hurt this man by violence. The priest and the Levite have hurt him by neglect. For whatever reasons, whatever good reasons, our opinion, our religious beliefs, who we are and what we think we need to do to be right with God and ourselves prohibit us from stopping and doing everything from, for this man. But a Samaritan, it says in verse 33, but a Samaritan as he journeyed came to where he was and when he saw him, 
He had compassion. Underline that if you've got a Bible with you, highlight that. He, he came to the place, he saw him, and he had compassion. We're building now, right? Even on that, that language, well, the priest saw him. Well, the Levite saw him and came to, the, came to the place and saw him. Now this Samaritan sees him and came to the place and has compassion. Compassion, that, that root word here, it, it's for guts. Like he felt it deep within him. He felt for this man that is hurt. It says, he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay when you come back. The language here is beautiful. So he sees him, he came to him, sees him, has compassion on him. And then it says, he went to him and he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Now, those words, that language, to, to bind up his wounds, to use oil and wine, um, language that you might use for first aid, right? He, he goes and he takes care of this guy, binds up the wounds. He uses uh, oil and wine to, to clean and disinfect the wounds would have been what they would have had there um, that, that would have been useful at their time, maybe some of the, the best first aid that would have been available to them. And so he does what is needed to do. But this language, especially binding up his wounds is one that you read in the Hebrew scriptures. Uh, uh, in the prophets, many of the prophets talk about this and they use that language to talk about God saving people from their sins or God restoring people and bringing them back uh, into his family. He will bind up their wounds. He will heal them. And then we have the pouring out of, um, of wine and oil. And while that is first aid language, it's also language that they would have used for uh, the sacrifices in the temple. That a priest or a Levite might pour out wine or oil, onto the sacrifices as part of their rituals. It's, it's worship language. And we see this stark contrast. These two, the first two, the priest and the Levite, who their, their whole world revolves around the worshiping community in the temple, pouring out wine or oil, binding up sacrifices and putting it on the altar for people. But they couldn't help this man. But then a Samaritan comes and his religion is binding up the wounds and caring for this man, showing compassion to him. What, what the, the, the worldview and the religious worldview of the priest and the Levite would not allow them to do is the religion of the Samaritan. He stops and at great cost to himself, at great risk to his own health, he cares for this man who is in need, who is hurting. He doesn't let, and this Samaritan, the Samaritans, they worship very differently, but he had, would have had the same uh, preoccupation with being defiled. Again, not to the same level as a priest or a Levite, but that would have been part of his tradition. He wouldn't have been able to go to his temple and worship either if he was defiled. So that's still in his brain, but he doesn't let that be his priority. Instead, his compassion becomes his priority. This is more important than that. And so I can go and help this person and care for them and love him. The Samaritan's mindset is that his worship of God is activated through compassion for this man, for other people. This is my worship. This is my pouring out. This is my sacrifice. This is what it's all about. And then Jesus says, as the end of the story, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the guy responds, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, you go and do Likewise, remember the question, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? 
Well, love God and love other, love your neighbor as yourself. Well, okay, but who's my neighbor? Like, let's, let's really unfold this. And for us, we go back to that verse in John 16, 316, who really believes and will inherit eternal life? What does it look like to really believe? And so Jesus has gone through this and says, okay, now which of those three guys? Is it the religious guys who had all the right doctrines in their minds, all the right ideas about God, all the right ceremonies, all the right, I go through the temple stuff and do my sacrifices and make that a priority. And he asked him, well, who is it? And the answer is obvious, but this is like last week when we talked about the eldest son who looked at his younger brother and he couldn't even acknowledge that he was his brother. He talked to his dad and said, this son of yours, same thing happens here. Who is it in this story that's the hero? And the guy can't even say the Samaritan, but instead he says, well, it's the one who showed mercy. See, it's not accidental that Jesus calls a Samaritan. In fact, a story like this is, um, it's formulaic. So I grew up, uh, and maybe some of you did too, maybe some of you didn't, but if you have a different uh, cultural upbringing or, or a different part of the world, you probably have certain formulaic stories or jokes where you know what to expect. So for me, it's like a knock-knock joke. Somebody says, knock-knock, and if you know knock-knock jokes, you know that you're supposed to say, who's there? And then the person who started the joke would say something like, boo. And you know that whatever they say, you have to say who. So if they say boo, you say who. And then they say, oh, uh, there's no need to cry. It's only a joke. It's a knock-knock joke. There's a formula. You know what you start with and then what you come back with and how it is. Well, this story that Jesus tells is like that. There's a formula of what people would expect. First, there's a priest. Then there's a Levite. The expectation is that the next guy down the road is a Jewish layman. And the Jewish layman probably shows up, the priest and the Levite, in most of those stories. Here, Jesus doesn't go there. He goes with a Samaritan. Samaritans were hated by the Jews, and they hated the Jews. Quick history lesson. In the history of Israel, hundreds of years before Jesus, uh, Israel split into two kingdoms, the north and the south. The northern kingdom eventually uh, was conquered by their enemies, Assyria, up, up north part of Israel. Syrians come down and take those people into exile and control them. A couple hundred years later, the southern kingdom is conquered by the Babylonians. And the Babylonians take a bunch of those people and exile them to Babylon. And then uh, uh, quite a while later, uh, they send a whole bunch of them back into the land of Israel. When they come back, there's these people uh, who had stayed in the north. Some of those people have been conquered by Assyria, had stayed in Samaria. And they had intermingled with the Assyrians, the great enemies of Israel. They had intermarried. Um, and so they had children that were no longer had the, the pure bloodline uh, that some of the Jews expected them to have. Um, they had mixed their religious views. Uh, over time, the people in Samaria built their own temple that wasn't in Jerusalem. It was a really big uh, uh, deal for uh, the Jews where their temple was and how they practiced. And so the Jews that came back from Babylon from the south, when they came back, they rejected those who had intermingled with the Assyrians, those who were in Samaria. They had said, you now don't believe the right things about God. You, you don't have the right ethnicity. You're not really pure like we are. And they became enemies. At one point, uh, one of the, the grandsons of the high priests in Samaria married uh, an official's daughter um, of their enemies. And th this wasn't like a, oh, you're cute and we get along, let's get married type of marriage. This was like, uh, in, in that days, that kind of thing between leaders and families of leaders would have been saying, we have a, a political alliance now. And so again, the Jews in the South would have said, you guys have totally sold out and you're worshiping false gods and you believe all the wrong things, you worship the wrong way, all the right 
rest of it. Some of the Samaritans started fighting. They joined with the Seleucids at one point, which was another enemy of the Jews, and fought against them in wars. There was a group of Samaritans that came and defiled the temple in Jerusalem by putting a whole bunch of dead uh, bones from dead bodies into their temple. I mean, they hated each other. The Jews considered them terrorists. And Jesus chooses that guy to be the hero of the story. Why? Because he's taken all of these categories of belief that we like to say, well, we're right and you're wrong. We have all the right doctrines. They would have said, these people have the wrong religious doctrines. Well, we worship the right way. Those people worship the wrong way. Well, we're the right ethnicity. They're the wrong ethnicity. And Jesus takes the tensions of race, ethnicity, and religion... And brings out the person that they would have expected last to come out. It's hard to really, really uh, impress you with the force that Jesus is trying to just really shock people with here. This would be like after 9-11, going into an American Christian church and telling a story like this. And the hero is a, a Muslim. And in the midst of a lot where a lot of people would have said it's us versus them and because they think the wrong things and, and their, their religion has led them to this hate, they're terrorists and we're the good guys and they're the bad guys and behind it is, and we know people that have died because of something that somebody did. That's the kind of thing that Jesus is doing here. He's shocking people. Whoever believes in him might not perish, but have eternal life. Well, who is that? Well, it must be the good Jewish people. For us, we might say, it must be the good Christian people who have good doctrine and think the right things and believe the right things and go to the right kind of church. And who might we put in if this story is being told to us, if Jesus was telling to us and trying to shock us the same way? You know, you have a, 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 a Catholic bishop come down the road and he passes the other way. You have an evangelical pastor and he comes down the road and looks, but he can't go either. And then who comes down the road next? A secular humanist? An atheist? Somebody from a different religion? Somebody that we would say, oh, these people, a lot of Christians would say, these people will not inherit eternal life. And that would be the kind of person that Jesus shockingly tells in this story actually gets it. The person who showed mercy. The person who really understood what religion, good religion, should be all about. That your opinions and your beliefs, if they're not leading to showing this kind of mercy, are probably wrong opinions. And Jesus saying, I think, that all of what we believe about our religious expression and loving God and loving others is expressed, it will lead to Caring, loving, at great cost, sacrificially to whoever it is that's hurting. Remember the, the guy that was beaten. We don't even know who he is. Who's my neighbor? It's anybody for Jesus here. It seems to be anybody who's in need, anybody who's hurting, anybody that you're passing by and you see needs your help. I think Jesus might say something like this. Your compassion is more powerful than your religion. Your compassion to be moved to action by compassion is more important than your religion. Than all the stuff that's happening in the temple. Because all the stuff that's happening in temple, if it doesn't end up in you stopping and caring for people, costly, sacrificial love, then you've missed what it is to love God and to love other people. 
And you might stop and say, oh, are you saying it doesn't matter what we believe? Because there's this little uh, argument that goes, um, some people say, oh, it's more about what you do than what you believe. And then you say, but if you say that, that's your belief. And so if that's your belief, but it's not about what you believe, then you can't tell me what to believe because your belief doesn't matter either. And, and that's not the point. It's not that our beliefs or our opinions don't matter. It's that the, 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 there's limits to the facts and the knowledge that we have, that that's not the most important thing. And that if our facts and opinions that we form don't lead us to love other people this way with compassion and sacrifice, then we have to rethink our opinions and what we actually believe. Yes, it's important what we think about morality and the economy and politics and social issues of all kinds. But Jesus is saying, if you want to inherit eternal life, the life of God, it's going to come through by loving your neighbors yourself. It's going to come through in compassion and so your compassion is more powerful than your religion. Or we could probably say your compassion should become your religion. We might expand and say your compassion is more powerful than your opinion. Well, I have so many opinions. I have so many opinions. What's, what's the power in having an opinion. In fact, we can too easily become so opinionated and kind of self-righteous because we think we believe all the right things. I have all the right theology nailed down. I know my Bible really well. I go to the right kind of church. Well, where does your opinion lead you? So let me throw out a couple of maybe shifts in questions. How would this look like if we really incorporate in this life, we want to apply this and say, I don't want to just become opinionated. I want to become compassionate. I just don't want to have opinions about something. I want to actually live out a way to love other people. How might our questions change? And I want to push on a couple of things that might be uncomfortable for you. I hope they are because I think that's Jesus' point. Some issues that, that maybe are big for us and we're trying to figure out. And I think maybe we sometimes frame the question in a way that's not as helpful as it could be. So here are, here are some uh, maybe hot button topics that we might switch. Just how we think about it and ask ourselves, is there something more important than just being right, having an opinion? So we could move from, what's your opinion on abortion? Important topic. But maybe we could shift to also asking, what can I do to support pregnant women in crisis situations? In other words, I can have an opinion about abortion or I can find places to care for people who are in a really tough spot, which is going to be more powerful. What's your opinion about substance abuse? Or we could shift that to ask, how can I partner to help those who are struggling with addiction? What's your opinion about who should receive social assistance or, or, or government money and the economy and all the rest of it? Or you could shift that to say, what am I doing in my life to care for people who are in financial need? What's your opinion about Black Lives Matter? And we could shift that question and say, how can I be a champion against injustice? What's your opinion about a million debatable, tough oftentimes very important questions. Well, our opinion will only go so far, but compassion leads us to eternal life. Compassion leads us to a place where we actually go and care for people, not just have an opinion about an issue. And I think that's where Jesus is pointing us to in this really powerful story. Say, who really believes? Well, it must be the priest. It must be the good Christians. It must be the Levite. It must be the people who are always in church and go through the right 
belief system and all the rest of it. And Jesus goes, what about if it's the person you least expect who just understands what it looks like to love people at their own cost, sacrificing themselves, prioritizing that over all the other stuff. Your compassion is more powerful than your religion or your opinion. So this month, we've been talking uh, in September a lot about signing up for, for a couple of things. And I think this is really important, and I, I just want to put it out there to you. Uh, and in a few minutes, a host will come on and tell you how you can sign up once again. But um, we've just been asking you to sign up for two areas. One is to volunteer somewhere in the church, and one is to get into a life group. And here's why. Because we want to create a community, and this year we have a big emphasis on this, and maybe it's a perfect time when there's a lot of times where we can't meet in person in a big group and go through the, 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 the regular rhythms of a Sunday morning and what all that looks like. And maybe it's time that that won't be a distraction from actual action. So we're asking you to volunteer somewhere so that you can help us put messages out like this, so that you can help us create a community for children or for youth or through technology or whatever ways to use our gifts to help share the love of Jesus. And then in our life groups, one of our big emphasis points this year is going to be how do we as a group of people look around and find needs around us and go and, and live out compassion. Find people who are in need, people who are hungry, people who don't have enough and be the ones that stop and care for them. Because this is our religion. This is following Jesus. Yes, there's a lot of good opinions and good theology that's all important. But all of those things should be leading us to this kind of lifestyle. And that's who we want to be. So I'm going to encourage you again today, before you log off, to go through, find those forums, and to sign up uh, for both of those things and to make sure that you're part of this. Because here's what I believe. That, that as a community, what we're trying to do as a church community is we're, we're walking collectively down the road together in this world. And all around us, there are these people who are hurting and in pain, physically, emotionally, financially, and spiritually. And my question is, who of us are going to stop and be moved with compassion to action? Heavenly Father, we thank you that we see that this is what Jesus teaches and what Jesus has done for us. Thank you that you want to bind up our wounds, that you care for us spiritually and emotionally and mentally and socially. And God, would you give us the courage to say that real good religion lived out properly, real good theology, real good opinions gets worked out in compassionate love that practically helps people in need. And we pray that this year we would see those, those practical acts of service worked out through our community in such a way that it changes the people of Ancaster and Dundas and Hamilton, the people that live all around us, the people that are on the road as we walk it. And we pray that your kingdom would continue to come each and every day to the world all around us. In Jesus' name, amen.